Thank you, Akeem. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we ask that you would guide us according to your truth. Help us as we consider your word to see the claims that you have made about yourself and for us to believe those claims that you are indeed truly God and truly man. Father, as we are entering in the Christmas season or we're fully in the Christmas season, we confess to you that we are overly busy and that we are distracted and in fact we have our minds on many things even this morning father i pray that you would help us to during this time to set aside those distractions and to focus our heart and our attention on what you have for us to see in your word father i pray that during this christmas season that we would not simply be caught up in the busyness of the moment and in the gifts that need to be purchased and the travel that needs to happen. But God, instead, help us to remember why we have this season. And it's because of the advent of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as we come through Christmas, that we would be humbled again to know that the God of glory lowered himself to become a person like us and take on human flesh and to take the form of a servant eventually giving his life as a slave, willing to die and dying for our sin. And Father, this Christmas, help us to focus our hearts and our attention on Jesus Christ and help us to celebrate not merely tradition or sentimentality, but help us to celebrate the advent of the incarnate Lord Jesus. And God, help us to place our trust and our confidence in this Lord Jesus, who has given us the offer of eternal life through his shed blood and through his resurrection. So guide us, I pray this morning, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, as Akeem said, this morning we're taking a break from Ephesians, and we're going to look just this Sunday and next Sunday in Hebrews chapter 2. And why this break? Why are we going to do this? Well, it's because we want to draw our attention on the advent of our Savior, Jesus. We have this built into our culture and our society. Even though our culture has become more secular and is walking away from Christianity, we still celebrate Christmas. And it gives those of us who place our confidence and our hope in Jesus Christ an occasion to pause and to reflect on that which is most important. If you're like me, you go through the weeks of from Thanksgiving to New Year's and it is a blur every single year. And it is one of those blurs that seems to get blurrier and blurrier as the years go on because it's only adding activities and responsibilities and obligations to these holidays that make them so blurry. And yet, in the midst of all of the things that we do surrounding this holiday time of year, it is easy to lose sight of why we celebrate the holiday of Christmas in particular. So this morning, I want us to focus, as we look here in Hebrews chapter 2, we want to focus and pay close attention to the source of our faith and the hope of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. This past Thursday, we had the privilege of having a Christmas program for our Crabapple Weekday Preschool that's led by Jenny Bates here at our church. And we had 
a little over 100 kids on this platform Thursday singing Christmas songs and smiling and some of them making weird gestures and all the other fun things that happen with preschoolers. But I had the privilege to share a brief devotion to the group of parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and others who had gathered for that. And I reminded them of what I'm going to remind you. And that is that we need to pay close attention to what God is saying to us at this time of year. We need to look carefully and consider what God has said about himself and invite other people to consider the claims of the gospel. As we enter into this season, we're in Hebrews chapter 2 to focus our hearts and minds on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the incarnation is central to our Christian faith. And what you say is incarnation, it is, it, it is that the God of eternity took on human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. He became one of us so that he could save us from our sins. Over the centuries, people have struggled to understand the incarnation because it's hard to wrap your mind around that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Some, in fact, have argued that if Jesus was fully God, then it simply was not possible for him to be fully human. And others have speculated, well, that doesn't seem quite right. So they've said, if Jesus was fully human, then there's no way he could be fully God. And what we see in Hebrews chapter 2 and Colossians 1 that Brandon read from and alluded to earlier, and in other passages, is that Jesus is truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man. In the 4th century AD, a man named Arius taught that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was a created being, and that he was of a different substance than his father, God. It was in AD 323 that the Council of Nicaea responded to Arius' false teaching, and they succinctly defined the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The Council of Nicaea was not inventing a new doctrine. They were simply summarizing what the Bible taught about Jesus Christ, that he was truly God and truly man. And this is how they said it. They said, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Council of Nicaea, in that rather long sentence, simply summarized what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And yet the false teaching about Jesus, deity and humanity, persisted after Nicaea. There was another person named Apollinarius who believed that Jesus' divine nature displaced his human mind and his human will. So the Council of Constantinople met in 381 AD to reject the teaching of Apollinarius. If that were not enough, there's another guy named Nestorius. He also had an error about Jesus. He believed that Jesus had two separate natures and two separate wills making Jesus two different persons 
in one body. That's extremely confusing. But the council of Ephesus came along and condemned Nestorius in 431 AD. But 10 years later, there was another person. It's almost like a game of whack-a-mole in church history of people denying the incarnation of Jesus. So Eutychus also denied his human nature, and this led to the Council of Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon. And we got the Chalcedon definition of Jesus' incarnation, which simply says this. Jesus is the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. The Chalcedonians went further and said that Jesus should be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unexchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. Those are big fancy words that simply say Jesus is both fully God and fully man. How it works, we, don't, we may not understand and we may wrestle with. But the point of the incarnation is that God entered time and space, took on the form of a human so that he could live a life without sin and give that life as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners like us so that we might experience the forgiveness of our sins. Debates about Jesus' deity and humanity persist today. Although the Chalcedon definition is perhaps the most clear definition of the incarnation, there are still people in every generation that come along and say, well, it just doesn't make sense, or it's not possible, or all kinds of other rationale that simply will go back to, he's either a human and not God, or he's God and not human. But historic Christian doctrine rooted and grounded in passages like Hebrews chapter 2 show that Jesus is in fact both. And he needs to be both so that we might have so great a salvation that the author of Hebrews says here in verse number 3. Advent season gives us a great opportunity to highlight the significance of Jesus' incarnation and to remind us to put our faith solely on Jesus. So we must pay attention. Listen carefully. The phrase, if I've told you once, I've told you twice, I've told you a million times. Those kinds of ideas that the author of Hebrews is getting at is that he wants us to focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus. In fact, the first thing that I think the author points out here in verses one to four is he's calling his readers to pay close attention to the doctrine of Christ. He's inviting his readers to pay close attention to this doctrine because it's so easy to either neglect, to misunderstand, or even abandon. So he says in verse number one, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The author of Hebrews is going to give five warnings throughout this letter, and he's going to challenge the believer's to re remember who Jesus is and focus their hearts and minds on him, to not neglect their salvation, to not walk away from those things that they have been taught. And this is the first of those five warning passages when he says we must pay careful attention. If there were another way to say it, he would say, stop what you're doing and listen up because this is of utmost importance. The author is emphasizing we here 
because he's identifying himself among the believers. He's not simply wagging a bony finger of self-righteousness and saying, you pathetic Hebrews. Instead, he's saying, we, including me, must pay careful attention to this doctrine because if we don't, it's possible that we may drift away. He doesn't mean here that the sound doctrine of the incarnation will move away from believers. But what he's saying is it's possible for us to move away from the doctrine of Christ. Jesus remains constant from generation to generation. It is us who sometimes drift and even reject what we have been taught. Ships regularly pass by lighthouses. And since we don't live by the sea, we're inlanders, we don't fully appreciate or understand the significance of lighthouses. Having lived in Scotland for four years, we were surrounded by lighthouses and we went to several of them and we got to see what an important function that they play in protecting ships from jaggy coasts, as they would say, or from rocky waters and other treachery on the sea that they need to be warned about. But what's significant about a lighthouse is that a ship must focus their attention on the lighthouse so they can avoid danger on the waterways. The lighthouse doesn't focus on the ship. The ship is the one that is moving. The lighthouse is the thing that is constant. And the author of Hebrews here is essentially saying that we must fix our hope on Jesus. He is the constant, the one we must pay careful attention to because in verse number 10, he says, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. As we are in Advent season, we need to focus on Jesus and be careful not to drift away. It's significant that the author chose the verb for drift because the idea here is that there is a passive, almost casual, moving away from Jesus. It's not an intentional denial. It's not a grand post on social media that says, I am deconstructing my faith. But it is a slow, incremental departure from the historic doctrines of Christ and a slow, incremental departure from faith in Christ. I'm old enough to know people that once professed Jesus who now no longer profess Jesus. And most of them, it was not because they had some eureka moment one day and decided all this Christian stuff I've been taught is crazy and doesn't make any sense. But what ended up happening to all of them is that they drifted away by neglecting the things that they had been taught. It was slow, it was steady, and almost imperceptible that they were moving away from Christianity and Jesus. First, it started with lifestyle decisions that were not considered all that important at the time. And yet the cumulative effect of those decisions, one after another, year after year, led them to the conclusion that they simply were not a Christian any longer. So this passage is a warning from the author of Hebrews to the first century audience and to us to not drift but to instead intentionally fasten our hearts to Christ and to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we will not neglect the salvation that has been provided for him. So the author here gives us a sober warning to pay attention. Next, the author asks us a searching question. 
he asks us a searching question. Look in verse two and three. He says, for since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Did you catch the question? How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? To put it in contemporary language, what he's asking is, are you ignoring the salvation that has been made available to you through Jesus? Are you ignoring the salvation that has been made available to you through Jesus? The author here is showing that Jesus is greater than anything that has come before him or anything that could come after him. God had given the law through angels and Moses, he affirms in this passage. This is also borne out in Deuteronomy, as well as in Acts and Galatians, where Stephen and Paul made the same point. The idea being that God had revealed himself to people through the law, and when people disobeyed the law, they were punished for it. The author of Hebrews is warning the receivers of Hebrews to not ignore and disobey what has been revealed in the gospel. Instead, he's saying, how should we escape? There is no escape. It's a rhetorical question where the answer is no. We cannot escape if we ignore this because the verb used for ignore implies willful or even rude disregard for something that is important. Jesus gave a parable about this in Matthew chapter 22 where the king was throwing a wedding banquet and he had sent invitations to his guests and no one had come to the banquet. So then he sent servants to gather those that he invited to this banquet. And even with the personal invitation of servants saying, come, the banquet is now. Many of those who had been invited simply ignored the invitation and carried on with their life and with their business to their own destruction and peril. If we ignore That is, if we willfully disregard the salvation that is offered in Jesus through his incarnation, then we cannot escape God's just punishment for every violation and disobedience we commit. That's a sobering statement, but it is a true statement according to scripture that sin's penalty must be paid and it can either be paid by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ or it can be paid by you and I. And if we are called upon to pay it, we can never satisfy the debt that we owe for the sins that we have committed. Even if you think, well, I'm a moral person. I'm nice and you should see at Christmas how much I do for charity and how kind I am to my family. And especially if you compare me to all the other idiots that I work with or all the other people that are in my family or whatever comparison we may offer. And yet none of those are the standard. The standard is God's word that is binding upon us. That's why he says here, that message that was spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. You see, when God gave the law, he didn't say, here's some suggestions for how you ought to live your life in relation to me. No, he gave them the command that you do this and there will be blessing. And if you don't do this, there will be judgment. And the history of Israel is a history of cycles of them obeying and enjoying the covenant promises and them disobeying and being exiled into punishment. 
as we come to the gospel of Jesus in his incarnation, Jesus took the curse of the law, which is he took the punishment for our sin. So he received all of the punishment that we deserve so that we could have forgiveness and blessing through him. So how could we possibly ignore this? We would have to be willful and we would have to be arrogant to say, eh, I don't care. Or, eh, I've heard all the sermons. Eh, I've gone to church my whole life. We can think of all kinds of rationalizations, but all of them go back to the idea of drifting, of saying, that's not important to me as it once was. I've got that baseline of knowledge. I don't need to go any farther. I've heard all the messages that could possibly be preached. I've even heard better sermons on Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. However we might rationalize, the point that the author is making is we cannot afford to ignore this. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. He gives a sober warning, a searching question, and then he offers a series of evidence about Jesus. He offers a series of evidence about Jesus to show that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He says this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In verse number three, the author reminds his readers of what this great salvation entails and that there is compelling evidence for this salvation worthy of our thoughtful consideration. This evidence starts with Jesus' testimony about himself, that he is freely offering salvation through himself. It says in verse three, this salvation was first announced by the Lord. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save sinners. Matthew said it this way in his gospel, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life away so that sinners like us could be forgiven. And he said this in Luke chapter four, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus made it his mission to make himself available for sinners who needed forgiveness. And we could go through the whole New Testament and see example after example where he offers himself as the savior of the world. This is ultimately what got him crucified because they recognized that he was claiming to be God. And he was exactly who he claimed to be. Well, Jesus not only offers salvation through himself, but eyewitnesses also confirmed Jesus' deity and humanity. Eyewitnesses confirm Jesus' deity in humanity. It says at the end of verse number three that this was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In John's gospel toward the end, you may remember that after Jesus was, was crucified and resurrected, there was a man named Thomas that we have come to call Doubting Thomas because he wondered what had really happened to Jesus. And Jesus, in his grace, appeared to Thomas, allowing Thomas to touch the wounds in his body to verify to him that he was who he said he was as both God and man. And then Jesus told Thomas this in John 20, 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. 
but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. It is through the witness of people like Thomas and the apostles and other eyewitnesses that we have these accounts of Jesus and that we can trust that they are trustworthy. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. And after that, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, Jesus appeared to me also as one abnormally born. There, Paul the apostle is reminding the Corinthian Christians that this message is trustworthy because Jesus had been seen firsthand by a number of people and that this was no figment of someone's imagination. There was no conspiracy theory where smart people got in a room and said, this is how the narrative will be told. But this is people seeing Jesus, responding to Jesus and believing Jesus, not neglecting the salvation, not ignoring the salvation, but paying attention to it and embracing it. Well, Jesus offered the salvation, eyewitnesses confirmed it, and then the Holy Spirit gave signs of this salvation. The Holy Spirit gave signs. It says in verse number four, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The point here is that the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, truly God and truly man is a message that is authoritative and that has been authenticated by the miraculous work of the Spirit of God. Hear what Luke said in Acts chapter 2. He said, or this is Peter's words in Peter's sermon as recorded by Luke, but he said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God, and he was accredited to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. The signs and wonders that surrounded Jesus' ministry, which we often call his miracles, were there to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be. There's no way that someone who is just a man could restore vision to blind people, who could make people who were paralyzed able to walk or give hearing to those who were deaf. Instead, all of those works and others that are recorded in, John, in the Gospels, which John says many more could have been recorded, were there to affirm that Jesus was truly God and truly man and one in whom we should believe. With so much God-given evidence about Jesus' deity and humanity, this leads to a convicting question about our eternal salvation. And it's a question that we cannot ignore from this passage and it's a question that leaves us without excuse about Jesus. What is the question? It's in verse number three. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Let me state it more directly in language we may understand today, and that is, are you ignoring the offer of salvation that is available through Jesus Christ? 
Are you ignoring the offer of salvation that is available through Jesus Christ? That's a convicting question because many of us here today have gone to church our whole lives and have heard of Jesus since we were children. And yet this question remains that even those who have been in and around the church must examine their own hearts and say, do I believe this myself? Is this simply the religion of my parents or my grandparents? Is this simply something that other people believe or is this something that I believe? As we come to the Christmas season, it's a God-given time to stop and say, pay attention, listen to what's being said. As Christmas carols are being sung, we hear the gospel in the Christian Christmas hymns in particular. And as they're sung, even by people who don't believe them, they still testify to the work of Jesus Christ. Are we listening? Do we believe this? Have we accepted the offer of salvation that is made through Jesus, or are we ignoring it? And to put this more personally, are you trusting solely on Jesus, or are you drifting away from Jesus? Are you trusting solely on Jesus, or are you drifting away from Jesus? The reason I ask it that way is because that's the point of this warning passage, is that there were some who said they believed Jesus, but they were steadily moving away from Jesus and how they lived and how they prioritized their life and what they ultimately believed. The road away from Christianity is usually a slow and steady departure rather than a dramatic turn. The road away from Christianity is usually a slow and steady departure rather than a dramatic turn. And it starts with what we believe about Jesus. And we must believe what he has said about himself because we need a savior. What's interesting is even in our culture, there are looks and desires for a savior because there's a recognition that something in our world is broken. Some look for that savior by trying to implement a form of justice in our society and say, well, I can't fix everything, but I'm going to spend my life working to make things right that are now wrong. Perhaps that justice is in caring for widows and orphans. Perhaps that justice is racial reconciliation. Perhaps that justice is in righting the wrongs of society. But whatever justice it may be, it is short if it's not centered around Jesus. Pay attention, listen carefully to what God is saying in this passage. He is calling us to trust solely on Jesus and not to drift away from him. And why is that? Because in verses five to nine, we see that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus is truly God and truly man. This passage focuses mostly on the humanity of Jesus that the God-man was also the Son of God. And we see in these verses that Jesus is greater than all the angels that have declared him. The angels that came to Elizabeth and told her of her son, John the Baptist, the angels that came to Mary and told her that she was carrying the Messiah, all of those messengers pointed only to Jesus and not to themselves. And it is not, he says in verse number five, the angels that God has subjected to the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. The author of Hebrews very cleverly quotes Psalm chapter eight here, Psalm eight. And he's quoting Psalm eight, reflecting 
on humanity in light of God's creation and in light of God's works. And he's saying that human beings are presently lower than the angels simply because we experience death. But eventually, God has appointed human beings to be judges of angels. And I don't have time to get into a whole excursus on that. But the point is that Jesus in his humanity and in his deity both has more authority than angels. And Jesus is worthy of our worship and worthy of our trust because he is greater than the angels. As Jesus is greater than the angels, he also died for our salvation. I said that that's one of the differences between us and the angels is that we must experience death. And when Jesus laid down his life in death, he wasn't laying down in defeat and saying, I couldn't do what I promised to accomplish. Instead, he was showing that it was greater than any human that has ever lived and that he was greater than any angel that has ever existed. The author says here in verse number nine, but we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as fully man, he experienced the sting of death. Yet he didn't remain dead. He overcame death with resurrection power because he is the incarnate son of God. And since Jesus is the only sinlessly perfect human being that's ever lived, he suffered for our sin and our guilt. And he satisfied the, the Father's anger against us for our sin and guilt. By becoming human, the author says here, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And God offers us the pardoning grace of the gospel through Jesus' death. You see, apart from the gospel, we deserve to die. We deserve to die as punishment for our sin. Yet in Christ, we can have forgiveness of our sin because Jesus died in our place. This is why Paul says in Galatians and Romans that he had been crucified with Christ, that his death was now in Christ and that he would also live in Christ. Jesus paid the penalty of sin that we deserve so that we could have the eternal life we don't deserve. And this is what the incarnation reminds us, that God is not making us little gods through Jesus, but the God-man Jesus who became a person or a human like us is making it possible for humans like us to have eternal life. So put your faith solely on Jesus, who is truly God and truly man. Do not drift away from this great salvation by ignoring Christ and by losing sight of the glory of his work on our behalf. On May 20th, 2014, when Crystal and Miles and Madeline and I were living in Scotland, a pair of fishermen in a village just south of where we lived set out on a lobster fish. These were professional fishermen that earned their living at sea, and they were experienced fishermen who went out every day to catch lobster, shrimp, and other fish there off the coast. Their names were Jim Reed and David Irvine, a grandfather and his adult grandson. Jim in particular had been fishing for over 50 years, very experienced in this work and in the dangers that were involved in it. 
And yet these two men, as they set off on their 16-foot creel boat, which is an open-framed boat that they set out into the North Sea, they were reported missing that night because they didn't come back to the harbor. It was all the news. And I remember because we lived six miles from this village, word traveled quickly. There were people walking up and down the coast trying to look for them. There were three lifeboats, three helicopters, and multiple commercial fishing vessels searching for Jim and David on the seas. But after 48 hours, the search was called off. The rescue was abandoned because they figured that they had been lost at sea and must be dead. Now that may sound stark, and you may be wondering, well, how in the era of cell phones and GPS could they not be found? Well, they had set out that morning on a quick trip to just go one or two miles along the coast, checking some of their pots. They didn't bring their cell phone, and their radio was broken. Then as they drifted a little further into the sea, they realized that their compass was also broken, and they were now in trouble, and if that were not enough, most of the first day they were at sea, it was covered in a thick fog where they could barely see to the end of their boat. These experienced fishermen now found themselves drifting hopelessly at sea, and they even spotted large ships passing by them, but they could not get their attention because they were too far away and their boat was too small. They had a couple flares that they shot off to try to alert the Coast Guard, and it was to no avail. The men spent 50 hours drifting along the sea, wondering if anyone would ever find them. Remember I said the rescue only lasted 48 hours, so at 50 hours, something incredible happened. A larger commercial fishing vessel called the Sylvia Bowers was following a predetermined navigation line from northern Scotland out into the English Channel. It was on autopilot, and two members of the crew were on duty that day when they noticed Jim and David in their little 16-foot creel boat. And they were surprised, to say the least, to see this boat. They didn't realize that the men were in trouble until they came up alongside them and asked what was on, and the men said that they were lost at sea. Despite rough seas and cold temperatures, Mr. Reed and Mr. Irvine never gave up hope that they would be found, they later said. They only had two cookies and a liter of water for the both of them during that 50-hour ordeal, and they had drifted 46 miles out into the channel. 46 miles. They were only intending to go one or two miles off the coast to check their pots when they ended up 46 miles away. And then what's even worse, the search and rescue had only extended 20 miles past the coastline because they thought there's no way such a small boat with experienced fishermen would go so far. And yet, by God's glorious grace, they were discovered. When they left the harbor that day, they left the harbor like they had hundreds, if not thousands of times before, simply headed to check their pots. Yet before they realized their peril, they found themselves completely lost at sea with no resources to help them, and they were completely at the mercy of the elements and at the mercy of God. They unintentionally drifted far from the safety of the coast, far from the safety of the harbor, and far from the safety of another ship. 
As we go through the Advent season and Christmas, sometimes we are just like these fishermen. We are in familiar territory, and we say, I've done a million Christmases, or it feels like a million Christmases before. I know how this is going to be. It's going to be exhausting, and I've just got to survive until after the new year. I've heard the story of Jesus so many times. There's nothing new that the preacher can say. I even know all the traditions and have some suggestions for some new traditions that we might incorporate. Yet behind all of that, you may be taking Jesus and the local church for granted. You may be drifting from the great salvation that has been offered in this passage and in the Bible, and you may be missing it all together. When Jim and David set out in their boat, they had no intention of being 46 miles out toward the English Channel where they had no ability to navigate their 16-foot boat. And as I said earlier in my sermon, most people don't drift away from Jesus and say, you know what, I'm going to deny Jesus and reject Christianity. But they slowly drift there, one decision at a time. So today, I want to invite you to pay attention and make the decision to cling to Jesus, to put your faith solely on Christ, that if you've heard the gospel and not submitted through repentance and faith, that you would put your trust in Jesus today. And that if you are a Christian, that you would match your profession of faith with your way of life and that you would make decisions that honor Christ above all other concerns and all other interests. And in that way, I would encourage you, rather than ignore so great a salvation, that you would pay attention to so great a salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. We ask for your help because we feel the busyness of this season. And we also feel the temptation to be distracted and to focus on all the wrong things. Things that are good, things that are fun, things that are sentimental, and yet things that could lead us away from Jesus. So God, don't let our busy calendars distract us from the advent of Jesus. That he interrupted time and space and the busy lives of people in the first century so that he could save people of every century. And God, help us not to let family concerns crowd out Jesus. Help us not to prioritize family gatherings and meals and gift exchanges and the excitement of children for the hope that we have in Jesus. And God, help us to be intentional about making Christmas about Christ, even though we say that culturally, that we want to keep Christ in Christmas or put Christ in Christmas. Help that not to be a bumper sticker or a cliche that rolls off our tongues, but help that to be a way of life that we live, that Christ is the center of all that we do. And Father, I pray this morning that we would know the comfort of salvation in Jesus, that we can have the forgiveness of our sins and that we can offer that forgiveness to our family and to our friends. And Father, I pray that you would use the season of Advent not only to call us back to Christ, but to invite others into your kingdom. And may this Christmas season see other people, people we know and love, come to Christ and become our brothers and sisters in the faith. And Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. In his name, amen.
Let's rejoice in Jesus Christ.